You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good to see everybody. It's nice to be here with you. Like Steve said, we were talking this morning just about the the collective breath, that sometimes it's just hard enough getting to somewhere. <laughs> so you guys did it. First job complete, just, just getting out, doing something. Um, but it's just way increasingly more beautiful when it's to come under um, our God and to come under the authority of just that we say Jesus is Lord, that we've had times this week and all of us in our own little lives where we've tried to be Lord, <laughs> we've tried to rule stuff and control stuff. And I've mentioned this before, it's one of my favorite quotes now, but um, this just was a quote uh, simply that Sunday is the practice of not being God. <laughs> and I just love that. They're like, man, we need that more, you know. Um, so I'm just so thankful to be here with everyone. So um, we're in the parable series. If you're first time here, uh, this is actually the fourth week in our parables uh, series. And we've kind of specifically chosen parables that are just uh, exclusive to Luke, the gospel writer of Luke. Um, so it's also a really cool, we're actually kind of going systematically in Luke. We're not covering all of them. There's tons of parables, and I think there's 18 that are specific just to Luke, meaning they're not in other gospel writers. Um, but there's obviously lots that, that cross paths. But if you want to read along, uh, we just don't have uh, all the time. We're not trying to teach through all of uh, Luke's theology, and he's very kingdom mindset. So it's not so much a study of Luke. Um, but there are specific things. So I'm just trying to encourage uh, if you want to follow along and read, uh, we're up to chapter 14 now in Luke, um, so you can be doing that. Uh, today is kind of actually a, a part one of two. Uh, next week we'll get into it. It's kind of two parables that are back to back, and they're within the exact same context, um, and they both address something very different and very related, which is really, really cool. So this is part one of two. Um, and if you remember, um, just kind of, we always talk about that we can't just take that story that we, you just heard. You know it's from Jesus. You know it's got some truth. You can't just take that and break down just the story without getting into the context of why did Jesus tell that story? Why on earth, in this particular moment, in this context, why would Jesus, God on earth with us in the flesh, tell this story? So again, we know that Jesus has been doing some incredible things. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He's been growing in followers, and he's been growing in haters, for sure. Um, and what's fascinating, a lot of the haters are actually the readers. A lot of the people that are the religious leaders of the day, uh, Jesus is a little bit offensive to them, kind of wars against what they have built up. Um, so they're trying to figure out what is this on one hand, you know, he's doing incredible things and he teaches with authority. On another hand, he's a nuisance because he's going against the grain of what we have built. Um, and so far they've kind of slowly like, okay, hey, Simon, you invite Jesus to your house and kind of just get to know him, figure out this thing out. Maybe, maybe you can, you know, dispel some of his popularity and that didn't work out very well. We looked at that a few weeks ago and another Pharisee, why don't you, you know, take him here or try to catch him in this situation, they're starting to kind of like put him in a little bit of like trap situations, right? And it's very different than the traps we're going to be shooting in a few days. But, um, but putting him in these situations here, and we get to Luke chapter 14, and we'll see that Jesus has been growing in popularity. He gets invited to somewhere really special. But let's get into the context. This is chapter 14 of Luke, verses 1, so we can get the context for our parable today. So 14.1, one Sabbath, when he, being Jesus, 
went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. Okay, we're right off the bat. <laughs> There's a bit there. Okay, so first of all, Sabbath. We talk a lot about Sabbath here. We're big fans of Sabbath. Sabbath, this was honoring and observing the, the command and the reminder long ago in the wilderness generation of the Israelites in Exodus 20. If you remember this, where, where Christ or God on the mountain through the tablets said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, throughout all the generations, what holy had turned into was to not work and to just rest in what had been accomplished that week, allowing it to be blessed by God, looking on to the next week, uh, knowing that this is a holy and sacred day, that there's just rest. The problem is, what that has turned into is a ton of rules and regulations to what no work or being holy actually meant, which may not necessarily have been the original uh, context of what holy meant. Now, these people, we, we were given a clue, the ruler of the Pharisees, okay? A ruler of the Pharisees. So Jesus, so far, he has been meeting with a Pharisee in a Pharisee's house, and they'll invite their friends and this kind of stuff. A ruler of the Pharisees, this is a level up, okay? This is the rabbis of the rabbis, the leaders of the religious group. This is what's called the Sanhedrin, Hey, the Sanhedrin, can you feel it? Chill in your bones a little bit? Like, this is a powerful, powerful group. They also had very big political power. They were, they were believed to kind of be like the judicial system for the Jewish people at the time. So again, the rabbis of the rabbis, the leaders of the leaders, Jesus is invited to them now. This is not just a Pharisee, the Sanhedrin. And what the key thing here is, as we'll see, he's not just invited to dinner. This is not about hospitality. Like, he is here on trial, right? He is here to be, to be looked down on and to be judged for what he's doing. So look at this. Verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Okay, boom, right off the bat, there's a hugely controversial issue here. Okay, first, it was Sabbath, okay? There was strict prohibition of any work on that day, especially when the Pharisees are watching him closely to see what he would do, Okay. Secondly, there's a man with dropsy. Okay, dropsy, real quick, was this uncomfortable swelling of the body. And before we start preaching gluten-free gospel, okay, it was, it was more because of water, okay? It was this weird kind of disease that happened. I think it's called edema today. Um, I don't know if that's how you say it. I'm not a doctor. Um, but uh, it was this thing where you're actually filled with so much water that your body is swelling uncomfortably. But here's the catch. You're swelling uncomfortably, but you're constantly thirsty. It's this crazy thing where you just want to consume more and more and more, but you're totally swollen with what it is, okay? So third factor is going back for, to the Leviticus law, dropsy was often believed to be the result or curse of a sinful lifestyle, which is fascinating. Someone that has that could be like, oh, there's been a curse upon you. We don't have time to get into that. It's back in numbers. Uh, we, let's have coffee. We can talk about it. But here, Jesus enters into this room, a man with dropsy is right in front of him. He's before the Sanhedrin. Okay, what is he supposed to do? If he helps the man in any way, he is A, made unclean by touching this man, assumed to have been living a sinful lifestyle, cursed with this dropsy thing, and also that would have been work to either move him or step over him or do something like that. Right, the proper thing, what the Pharisees would have done, would probably just to be like, ignore the man, walk around, keep your head high, don't look down, right? But they know Jesus, they've heard of Jesus, we've been reading about Jesus, 
They play on his compassions. Now, this is my own opinion. I would encourage any of you, please go study. Please go look this up. Don't just take it from me. But there's kind of two options here for this man. Okay, first, dropsy was considered a disease of a wealthy person because of the access to much water, drinkable water, okay? This man doesn't necessarily have to be poor. I don't know if you heard a man with dropsy and immediately thought poor, lame, beggar, that kind of thing, right? Not necessarily. This could be a very wealthy person, could be of good standing, could be a temple leader who just happens to have dropsy and is there at this particular point in the room. Or, in my opinion, right, this is a plant. Okay, don't let me sway you, but this was a plant. Whether he was rich or poor, invited or imposter, this seems like an obvious test for Jesus, doesn't it? And we'll see some more clues as we go. Um, this was the Sanhedrin, right? They don't just let anybody into this room. In fact, the whole room, it would have been arrayed where the top of the leaders, if, I, if this was kind of the top, it's kind of this horseshoe position. I just whistled. Horseshoe position there, right? And everyone, the, the leaders, the main people would have been at the top of the horseshoe and everyone would have been seated in importance, a level of importance next to them, all leaning on their elbow trying to like weasel their way in, okay? It was a very like competitive system, okay? So everyone is there and the seat, it would have been arrayed where the place to come in would have been at the very lowest end of the table in view of all the splendor of the thing, okay? So if Jesus, now on the other side, Jesus is walking into the room, He's at the lowest end of the table, and there was placed a man with dropsy at the lowest end of the table. Okay, so verse 3, and I love this. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. They didn't ask him a question, right? Like, he knows what they're doing. Like, okay, okay, I see what you're doing. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent, okay? Then Jesus, he took him, healed him, and sent him away. And then he asked this question, verse 5, and he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Okay, so now they're kind of silent for a whole different reason. He heals the man, which first of all is incredibly because there's, there wasn't a cure for dropsy, okay, and because it was considered to be a disease caused by sin, how could Jesus have just healed this man? How could he have done it unless he healed the sin? They couldn't comprehend that. But Jesus doesn't give him an inch. He dives right into what would have been considered actually appropriate work for the Sabbath. Rescuing a family member, rescuing a vital, important piece of the farm life that they had, an important animal, right? Jesus is saying, you placed this wounded man in our midst and I cared for him, not like a stranger, but like a son, like an important part of our society. What could, the, what could their answer have been? They had to reconcile. Their plan was backfiring. And I love how Jesus is just like, okay, okay, guy, your, your job's done. You can go. He like sends the guy away, right? And this is where, this is the point where Jesus looks up at these important people, at the Sanhedrin, after just doing some miraculous detective work there. He sees the lowest seat of this entire table now is open. The dropsy man is gone. And this is where he says this parable. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited, and when he noticed how they chose the places in honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, 
Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So if you remember in our very first parable talk, um, in, back to the parable of the sower. We didn't go through the parable of the sower, but that was our basis for saying just how, how simple Jesus makes the parables. Remember, he was telling a bunch of farmers how to sow a seed and how plants grow. Not super brilliant, right? But he's like, this is how accessible it is. Well, here he's not addressing the Sanhedrin. What, is the par- what does he say? He told a parable to those who were invited. To those who were invited, okay? So remember, he's telling, this, he's telling them uh, the problem is that the obvious answer to what he's asking them is, is where, he's saying, guys, when you get invited to a feast, where should you sit? The obvious answer is what to them? Like at the head of the table, right? As close to the head as possible, right? But he's telling them something so simple and something so obvious. You just, the, the obvious answer is not the lowest, right? It was to be at the most important position. He's saying you need to pick the lowest position. Here's what he's doing. Think of the Sanhedrin leaders. Jesus is offensive to them. He is this up-and-coming rabbi, but his followers are all wrong, right? They're not the good, clean people like we are, right? They're beggars and lame and former prostitutes and sinners. And here's what he's doing. Jesus, he must be trying to trick us. Of course he wants to be where we are. Of course he wants to be at the head of the table because we've deemed this to be the most important. But look how Jesus tells a story. To the invited guests, right? To the invited guests, not just to them. He says, when you're invited to an important feast, taking the high seat means that you are confident that you belong there and no one else could possibly show up who is more important than you. All of this is defined by who is at the head of the table. But what if the head of the table isn't the goal? What if the whole value system of what's important gets flipped upside down and instead of pushing and shoving for the highest spot, there's a totally different route to go? Jesus continues, verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in the first half of the parable, the guests are invited to a wedding feast. Who's the most important members of the wedding feast? The bride and the groom, right? But here the people invited are fighting for the most important position themselves. They forgot what they're even there for. Sitting at the lowest place to honor and raise up other guests to be able to honor the actual host of where they're invited. This could actually lend itself to the flipping of the script and raising up the lowest seat because the point of accepting the invitation is to be with the host. Okay, so that's the point of this particular story, but we continue in the context. What is Jesus doing here? Okay, he's addressing the guests, not the Sanhedrin yet, and he's flipping the script of the religious leaders who have gained power for themselves and have raised up these positions. They've been placed in positions of great importance and leadership, and instead of ruling benevolently benevolently and lifting others up, they've made their positions great and mighty and rule top-down to the people. Now, you know I love history. You know I love to dive back into things. So would you join me real quick on a fun journey 
Real quick, we want to do the establishment of just the whole central worship at the temple system. And I think you'll see why this is so crucial here. We'll see this whole idea of the temple, the temple leaders, of, of bringing people into worship has its roots deep in humility, not in loftiness. In fact, the establishment of God's presence dwelling among the people was often written to be a terrifying thing, not something to control, something to behold, right? Going back to the wilderness generation, back in Exodus, this was the description of God coming down the mountain to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses wasn't able to enter it, right? There was a whole tribe of Israel called the Levites set apart to remind and keep the people focused on the centrality of the tabernacle, the core foundation of God's presence dwelling with his people. These Levites and priests were completely dependent upon the surrounding tribes to support them as they were freed up to watch over the temple and to gather the people into worship and have everything they, they, they have there to be due to the rest and centrality of God in their lives, to rest in God. And then later, after the tabernacle, after it's kind of more established, right, Solomon is instructed to build the temple. To, to construct the first stationary temple, not this tent that's going to go with them and travel, but this meeting place with God, this incredibly elaborate temple. And I want to read you this because it's so good. This is uh, found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Solomon gives this prayer. He prays over the finished temple dedicated in. Here's his prayer. It's so good. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. Chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What a powerful scene. You can't, you can't come back from something like that, right? Man, and if you know the history and you remember just even like a few, like a month ago, we talked about this in our Minor Prophets series, this temple was later destroyed. That this is what the Babylonians, when they came in and they wiped out that temple, the beautiful temple, this would have, they would have remembered this moment, watching these invaders take out this temple. They're, they're like, wow, God's glory filled that temple and those invaders just wiped it out. They went into exile. They came back. They were instructed to rebuild it. Now you can see why they had such a hard time remembering the former glory of the temple and saying, man, how can we rebuild this thing? But they did it. They rebuilt the temple. And this is the temple, the same temple that these Sanhedrin are supposed to be leading. 
This is the same temple that the priests here are supposed to be bringing the people in and making God accessible to them. But here's the thing. Like, this is the great history of the temple leaders and what they represent. And those awestruck moments of fire from heaven and ultimate worship of God's presence where even the holiest of leaders couldn't enter. But now these leaders, before Jesus, have raised themselves up to act like this is their house. Like this is where they, this is their property where they can do what they think is right in their own eyes, as if, acting as if they're the only ones who could enter because of their righteous lifestyle. Do you see the dichotomy, the difference of what it used to be? And we get this insight on this side of the scripture, right? But these so-called temple leaders, they're, they're kind of their boots off, feet on the table, reclining before the boss kind of thing, right? And Jesus walks in. They have defiled the temple, God's presence, by turning it into this competition of holiness and status. Jesus is God's presence on earth. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And God is there as a man to hold man accountable to God. Okay, so, so that's the history of it. You see the scene where Jesus is coming in saying, man, you have turned this into something very different. And not all of them. Remember, we talked about this last week. It's not all the Pharisees, right? But some that have set themselves up. So back to our scene, okay? There's, of course, some humility that's needed here. We can walk away now and be like, man, we, yeah, humility was needed. We need humility. Awesome. Amen. Go for it, right? But the gospel writer Luke is making it no secret that Jesus has been calling out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and fruitless ministries. But Jesus He's not just asking the religious leaders to humble themselves here. Remember who he's addressing, the invited guests. In this parable, he's also teaching people how to humble their leaders. Okay, think about it. How important will the head of the table feel if no one wants to sit close to them or lean towards them? How important would that appeal? What if there was no head of the table, right? And here's the reality of the head of the table philosophy. And I know I'm preaching the choir it's never enough, right? We can see it here in the text, and we can see it here in our current day and age. Can anyone ever really be at the top, right? Is it ever really attainable? Think about like sports, if you're a sports fan, right? How many championships do you have to have before it's truly done? Before it's truly done, right? In life, how much money does it take to truly be done and satisfied? What status do you have to have that will always and forever be enough. See, this is the brilliance of Jesus and the gospel writer here of Luke. Remember, Luke is a physician, okay? That's like one of the things that you can know about each gospel writer, and Luke is a physician. So we might not blink an eye at some medical diagnosis, but how fascinating is it that Luke just throws out in this particular story before this parable that there's an injured man in front of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin at a very important feast. Oh, and what's his injury? Right? What ails him? Oh, it's a disease that he's filled up and it's never enough. <laughs> right? You, you can't make this stuff up, right? Like the irony of ironies is incredible, right? Dropsy is, of course, an analogy for the pride of these Pharisees. They did it. They're the best of the best. And yet here they're still trying to throw Jesus under the bus. They're still looking their, down their noses at the dirty and the lame and the poor and the sinners. They're still taxing unnecessarily and building wealth for themselves because they've made it. But the head of the table is a giant illusion. 
It's unattainable. And here's what happens. When it's unattainable, for the people they're supposed to be leading to God, they are making God unattainable because they're putting him in that position. So it's like back to the rich fool that we looked at last week, right? If stuff becomes the master, then we're slaves to the stuff and wanting more of it. Here he's calling out the insidiousness of power and prestige and importance. That is what has become their master. And here's what's so insane about it. No one could be God. They all understood that. No one likes claimed to be God except Jesus, and they got killed for it. But being at the right hand of God was something the purest of hearts desired. And yet, what are we told about Jesus? We can know this because we have the scriptures, which is so good. But Philippians 2.6, this is from Paul in his letter to Philippians. Philippians 2.6, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is how crazy this scene is. Jesus left the position these leaders all aspire to emulate in, a, in their own kind of selfish, twisted way so that he could come teach these leaders how to humble themselves and to instead see others as uh, just as, if not more important than themselves because all people are image bearers, not just the important ones. And God has come to be available to all who call upon his name. And like I said before, this is just part one where he's addressing the invited guests. Next week, he's going to go right at the Sanhedrin. It's so juicy. It's so good. But to finish off our section today, we go back to the day that it was, right? Do you remember what day it was? Sabbath. Awesome. The Sabbath, right? Jesus couldn't have violated the Sabbath here because the basis for this Sabbath feast was already in error, okay? The Sabbath commandment continued, okay? So it was remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, but this is how it continued, Exodus 20, 10. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, now, this is not trying to be a Sabbath talk or anything like that, but look at that language. Oh, it's everyone under your care, right? The Sabbath rest isn't something to just be taken. It's something to be given, right? You are to give rest to everyone under your care and influence. Why? Just for a day off? No, to be, just to sit and be in the presence of God. Because at the end of the day, if leaders can give rest and encouragement and lift up those around them, then this is following the example of Jesus as he humbled himself to show us that it's not a God who dwells with holy, righteous people, but a, rather a people can dwell with their holy, righteous God. And if you ever find yourself feeling so far away from God, if you ever find yourself, not, not necessarily because he feels far away, but because you feel like you're not enough, Right? If you ever feel like your, your dirtiness is too much for such a holy God, like because of the modern day Pharisees and even in our life today that make life with God unattainable unless you do A, B, or C, when it actually feels like it's better to be a sinner than a hypocrite, right? if you ever feel that, two things. First, you're not alone. Right? You're not alone. This happened in Jesus' day. This happened before Jesus' day, and this happens today, right? Our awe of God should be constantly like that, remembering his presence, filling the temple. 
right? The fire and the cloud and the sheer magnitude of his presence should make us fall in the knees, in, on our knees in humility. But don't also, too, don't forget all that fire, all that smoke, all that awesomeness that we read about is not because of judgment. It's because God came to be with you and to show that the darkness is judged, right? The darkness cannot win, that his holiness is greater than our unrighteousness. And if you look back, even those who were the most set apart, the most holy, Moses was, was supposed to be this guy, this prophet, right? And even he couldn't enter, right? God enters his dwelling place like that as example that our fear and our, and our awe is misplaced. It's not in how bad the darkness is. It's how awesome and holy our God is. And in fact, we'll get into this more next week, and this is just a little teaser, but instead of just allowing you to enter into his temple, right, this great and holy God actually enters us, right? Ever wonder why the Spirit comes down as fire hovering over the people in Acts 2, right? We'll get into that a little bit next week. The purifying fire that enters those who want to be rid of darkness and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's so good and so intentional. And all this is because of Jesus' work on the cross. And I want to stop talking, but I want to conclude with the incredible full words of Philippians 2, because I think Paul just nails it, where he just really talks about the example that Jesus gave, not just in this parable to the people, what he came just in little physical form to do. So I want to read Philippians chapter 2, and then we'll respond to our good God today. So Philippians 2, starting verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.